So Holy Spirit, we just say as a, as a family, as a house, that you are the most honored guest in the room. And so whatever you have in store for us, if you um, want to speak in any way, we just say you're welcome. We love you. We are forever grateful for the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus, um, and the infilling of the Spirit, the Spirit loving us and leading us. And So God, we just love you. We come to your word today, Lord, not out of tradition, but out of reverence and respect. And this is an extension of our worship. We bless your name. Jesus, we just say today that you are beautiful in all your ways. You are righteous, wonderful. You're king of kings, fairer than 10,000. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Somebody say amen. 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 Well, I got a lot to say this morning, so I need you guys to listen a lot faster than the first service, okay? Seth was asking this week if I wanted to talk about Matthew chapter 23 because of the recent news about Ravi Zacharias. Um, Matthew 23 is a rebuke to the Pharisees, but it's largely about spiritual hypocrisy. And so it came out recently, Ravi Zacharias is a very pop, was a very popular apologist. He passed away this year, um, which is kind of evangelism in the intellectual realm. Um, He passed away this year and it came out that he was living a pretty gross double life using ministry funds to support his immoral lifestyle. And it it was disgraceful. Um, But I was telling Seth that um, I don't really think much about anyone who hadn't been dead for a couple hundred years. And so (laughs) it wasn't, it wasn't Robbie Zacharias I was thinking about, but I've had on my mind, John Wesley for a couple months now, and I've really been trying to understand his teaching, his theology. There's a lot of misconception about Wesley's theology, some that I had bought into. And so it's been fun for me to explore Um, We've talked before about John Wesley's return from Savannah as he came back to England. And um, on his journey back, he remembered um, a group called the Moravians. And so he decided that he would visit um, Aldersgate, the Moravian uh, meeting. And at Aldersgate, he said it was there that he met the Holy Spirit in a very um, powerful way. He said that his heart was strangely warmed. And after Aldersgate, he left and he went to the Moravian headquarters in Europe, and he spent some time there with the Moravians, and it was there that a Moravian minister told John Wesley that every believer needs to have a personal Pentecost, a personal encounter with the Spirit. Um, and so John Wesley taught, along with Edwards the Calvinist, he taught faithfully that we are saved by faith alone, through grace alone. The blood of Jesus is the only way that anyone is saved, nothing else. Faith in the cross of Christ. Wesley taught that so thoroughly, we want to continue to reiterate that the distinction in Wesley's theology was, and Wesley would word it this way: He would say that salvation is the front porch of the Christian life, and that it invites you in to the inner room where we really meet with the Holy Spirit and grow in knowledge of God. In other words, Jesus didn't save you just so you could sit down on a chair and watch for the rest of your life, but the blood of Jesus bought for us communion with God. And God told us that communion with himself on this earth would be through the person of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus said, I will send him to you. It'll be better for you that I go. I'll send you the the helper, the Holy Spirit. And so Wesley's emphasis was largely that the Christian life is not only about salvation, although salvation is beautiful. The most beautiful moment in any Christian's life is when they give their life to Jesus and are washed by his precious blood. Um, But the Christian life is one that continues. And as we continue in the Christian life, we grow in our intimate knowledge of Jesus and knowledge um, of the Holy Spirit. We should encounter him. Now, um, I said all that to say this, that um, the 
the charismatic movement, the Pente- it has its roots in the Pentecostal movement, um, and we would call ourselves a charismatic church, which means that we still believe in tongues and prophecy. We still believe the Holy Spirit gifts the church with certain gifts. We will be mocked and rejected for that conviction, but I'm okay with that. Um, Paul says, I pray in tongues more than all of you. Um, and so I'm okay with the fact that at times we'll be mocked for that conviction. We still believe in the power of the Spirit is for the edification of the church today. Um, that's a scriptural concept. It's okay. Um, the The Pentecostal movement has its roots in the year roughly, basically the year 1906. There were some things that happened before. Um, but in 1906, William Seymour, who was an African-American man, um, began to lead a prayer movement in Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And that prayer movement is what birthed the Pentecostal movement, which the Pentecostal movement had certainly had some errors and some theological bumps and bruises. But its, its emphasis was that when Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, he meant it. When Paul said, walk with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, he meant that. And so the Pentecostals said, hey, we believe, scripturally speaking, that we should be encountering the Holy Spirit, the person of the Spirit, and they pressed in from there. Now, the Pentecostals were, um, so, so William Seymour was a Methodist, the leader of that movement, the African-American leader of that movement. Um, I rabbit trailed into this thought earlier this morning, and I want to do it again because I felt like it might have been the Lord. It might not have been the Lord, and if not so, um, get over it because I got that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, Seth and I did work in Columbia all weekend. We were working, painting, fixing up a house, and um, so we spent a lot of time talking and driving, and we were talking about our modern emphasis on what's called um, critical theory, sometimes called critical race theory, um, and it's basically a regurgitation of forms of Marxism, which classes everybody up based on their economic standing and their race and ethnicity, or their the, the modern version classes everybody up also based on your um, your sexual preferences. And, um, and so there's a movement in the church that's essentially leaning into these critical race theory ideas to try to find reconciliation. And what I was telling Seth it, is that it was the year 1906 when the Pentecostals, they were Caucasians, Asians, Hispanics, all calling an African-American man their pastor. And as much as they were mocked and spit on and persecuted for speaking in tongues, they were even more persecuted for calling a black man their pastor. And what I was saying to Seth is, by God, we don't need to go to Marx to find racial unity. Let's look at Azusa Street. And, and what the Azusa Street believer said was, I don't care what color he is, the man prays and the man preaches the word of God. And we honor him. We honor his ethnicity. We honor his heritage. But what matters at the end of the day is that is a man of God. And I will gladly call him pastor. And I'd like to return to that. I would pay large sums of money to sit and hear William Seymour pray. Large sums of money. And so what we need to do is return to the place where the church is not united around trying to explore old Marxist ideas and CRT to find unity. Let's go back to to Los Angeles, the year 1906, where we say we are hungry for God. And whoever you raise up, God, Asian, Hispanic, black, red, yellow, and white, whoever you put your hand on, we will gladly serve and follow if they are of God. And so that's the that was a beautiful piece of the Pentecostal movement. You're talking about Jim Crow's in place till the 50s. Um, you're talking about 1906, there are Caucasians calling, reverently referring to an African-American man as their pastor. I have a lot to say about that, but let me get off that train for a second. 
So, the Methodist movement, um, William Seymour was a theologically trained Methodist. So when they said, we want the power of the Spirit, they did not just mean the gifts of the Spirit. They also meant the power of the Spirit to make us holy. And that was the, 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 the holiness movement, Wesley's emphasis, was that the Spirit comes to cleanse us, to sanctify us. So think with me for a second. Imagine the old school Pentecostals that you've all made fun of, right? The women in buns, right? In long skirts. They, they really still talked a lot about personal holiness. Now, again, I'm not trying to whitewash that history. There are lots of problems happening over here. But what happened in the 60s and 70s when the charismatic movement um, began to come into other churches, that the charismatic movement in the 60s and 70s embraced tongues, embraced prophecy, embraced healing, embraced the gifts of discernment, and the idea that the kingdom comes in power. The charismatic movement loved all of those ideas, but they left the Wesleyan roots. You would never, there would never be such a thing as a Pentecostal pastor with a private jet, okay, because they gave all their money away to missions. There was no such thing in, in the early 1900s of a Pentecostal pastor who was very wealthy and making his money off ministry because they were selling everything they had to see the world come to know Jesus. And so it was in the 60s and 70s where we really began to love the gifts of the Spirit more than we wanted the, all of the Spirit's work to make us holy. And so what I want to do, I'm taking way too much time to set up this series, but I will never do this again for the rest of the series. Next series we will. Um, but what I want us to do is to get back to the place. We just spent 12 weeks working through Acts 1 through 4 and repetitively saying the church had the power of the Spirit. We need the power of the Spirit. We did that for 12 weeks. Now what I want to do is I want to take some time to make sure we're not just loving the gifts and the power of the Spirit while denying and rejecting the same power of the Holy Spirit to, to conform and transform me into the image of Christ. So, so um, we want to be sincere and genuine laid down lovers of Jesus who love and cherish the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and to deliver and to restore while we acknowledge the Spirit daily in every step. I want you to learn to respond to the Holy Spirit when he prompts you to pray for a sick person, you see. And I also want you to re learn to respond to the Holy Spirit when he tells you to shut your mouth. Okay? We want all of him. And what the Charismatics did in the 60s and 70s, I'm stereotyping, right? These stereotypes have truth, but not every church did this, but largely. The Charismatics said, if you can prophesy, if you can heal the sick, if you are gifted, we're going to put you on the podium and, and make you the leader. What Paul told Timothy is that elders, pastors should be men of faithfulness, sobriety, servant-hearted, faithful to their wife. They lead their children well. Paul didn't say anything about how much charisma the man had. Okay, and so you, you guys with me? We want to get to the place where we're not just after charisma and a display of giftings. We want all of the Holy Spirit. Our culture is shifting very quickly. Like the things that happened this week, my eyes are rolling. Like very quickly. As our culture continues to abandon her Christian heritage, we are going to start to look more and more different. That's all right. That's totally good. And I, I want to go here to where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because I want you to remember that the Pharisees lived in first century Greco-Roman empire. They looked different, okay? 
They lived different. They were very, there was, in Greco-Roman world, there was gross sexual acts of immorality. The Pharisees, they didn't do any of that. They looked different. But they looked different for all the wrong reasons. We want to make sure that we looked different, that we're pursuing holiness, but out of sincerity. Amen? Okay, let's read the introduction to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to do a lot of context today. We don't have an option but to do a lot of context. Um, and we'll step into the what are called the seven woes next week. Okay, you guys good so far? Let's read Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read verse 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. In modern language, you exalt yourself, you'll be cut down. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. First, I need to spend a little bit of time giving you context for where this happens in Jesus' ministry. And so Matthew chapter 23, I don't know if you know this or not, but it comes after Matthew chapter 22, okay? And so (laughs) in Matthew 22, let me read to you from verse 15 through 18. It says, The Pharisees went and plotted out how to entangle him in his words. And so they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test? And this is where Jesus says, Bring me a coin. Whose likeness is on the coin? Caesar's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to the Lord the things that are the Lord's. And what you have is the Pharisees coming with Romans to Jesus and saying, we know how you don't care about appearance. You're truthful. You don't care about appearances. Tell us. And they're trying to entangle Jesus. They're trying to entrap him. Next, in Matthew chapter 22, we get the Sadducees coming to Jesus. Remember, Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. And they say to Jesus, if a man has a wife and the man dies, the law requires that his brother marries his wife. But now imagine the brother dies. And, and so the wife ends up with seven different brothers who are her husband. And then in the resurrection, whose husband, who will, who will be her husband? And Jesus says, um, you know nothing of the resurrection, essentially. And then follow down in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 35. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so Jesus silenced the Sadducees trying to catch him up, they interrogated, um, heard that they had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, they got their lawyer together, came to ask Jesus, What is the greatest law of all? This is where Jesus says, The greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, and that you serve your neighbor as yourself. And so what we see is there are three cases, two of them being led by Pharisees, where the Pharisees are trying to interrogate Jesus in order to trap him in his words. They're questioning him, questioning him, questioning him. And now I love the end of Matthew chapter 22, because the scripture says in verse 41, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, the Christ will be the son of David. 
And Jesus says, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so Jesus now interrogates the Pharisees. And he says, whose son is the Christ? And, and they say, of course, Messiah is going to be the son of David. Then why did David say in Psalm 1, 2, the Lord says to my Lord? Why does David call him Lord? What Jesus just did was offer a profound theological conundrum and left all the Pharisees scratching their head. And the scripture says they never dared ask him a question again. So Matthew 22, it's Jesus being interrogated by religious leaders, interrogated by religious leaders. And then in Matthew 23, we're going to step into Jesus rebuking them, um, offering a long rebuke towards these Pharisees. Now, I don't know if you know this, but after Matthew chapter 23 comes Matthew chapter 24. Um, Matthew chapter 24 is one of the greatest expressions of of predicting future judgment. And so Jesus not only predicts in Matthew chapter 24 in times judgment, but he also predicts um, the, the fall, the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 8070. And so what he does is he gives seven woes. Seven times he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. And at the end of the woes, he offers a lament. And the lament is this, is where he looks out over Jerusalem and he says, how I long to gather you together, as a mother hen would gather her chicks. But you rejected me and you didn't know the time of your coming. Then he says, now your house will be laid desolate. What is the house of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the temple? In Matthew chapter 24, he says, not a stone in Jerusalem, but will be left upon one another. So in other words, um, this is where Jesus has been interrogated by the religious leaders. He rebukes them, and then he prophesies that there's a day coming quickly. This is where his people get confused here, but he says, this generation shall not pass away until all these things happen. He's saying, this generation will not pass away until not a stone lays on another stone. And so, so some just 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jerusalem is totally laid to waste. Do you guys kind of catch what's happening there? So we're going to study the rebuke, um, but right after the rebuke comes the pronouncement of judgment. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am very displeased with your spiritual hypocrisy. So much so that he mourns um, their rejection and then pronounces that there's a day coming when the temple will be totally obliterated. So let's um, approach our passage with that context in mind. And we won't go through all that context again, but try to carry that context with you as we study for the next several weeks. So what Jesus says is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they love to sit on Moses' seat. The Greek implies, the way that the Greek verbiage works there, is that they love to continually seat themselves on Moses' seat. Um, Hobbes quotes an old Jewish saying which says this, Moses received the law and delivered it to Joshua. And Joshua, he delivered it to the elders. And the elders delivered the law to the prophets. And the prophets delivered the law to the men of the great synagogue. In other words, the Jewish saying said that the men who sit on Moses' seat have received the law, they've received their authority from the prophets, who received it from the elders, who received it from Joshua, who received it from Moses. So when they sit in the synagogue and teach, they are teaching you from a long line of heritage and with authority. Yet Jesus says, don't listen to a single, he says, listen to what they say, but don't do a single thing that they do. In other words, their authority is only authoritative as long as they are properly expressing what Moses has taught. But their lifestyles are totally out of line. Now, historians 
they classify, sometimes talk about Judaism this way. They talk about first temple Judaism. First temple Judaism would have been the temple of Solomon, right? Solomon builds the temple. Israel's still united. They're incredibly prosperous. The temple is beautiful and huge. Um, but that temple was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. So when the, when the Babylonians came and took the Jews, totally ravaged the city, they destroyed the temple, took the Ark of the Covenant, and the Jews are now brought into Babylon. And for 70 years, they're left in captivity. Um, it was Cyrus, the Persian, who allowed them to return um, to Jerusalem. In the year, roughly the year 586 um, B.C., the temple was rebuilt. Now remember the story. When the temple was rebuilt, there's great celebration at the same time the elders are weeping. The scripture says that you're unable to tell whether they're, they're singing, excited that their temple has been rebuilt, or whether they're mourning. Because the elders who saw Solomon's temple now see the temple rebuilt in the year 586 BC and say, this ain't nothing like what Solomon built. And so they're mourning the judgment that they've just received. Now, second temple Judaism exists from the period 586 BC when the temple was rebuilt until 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And so second temple Judaism had a certain emphasis. Um, largely what happened was the, um, imagine this community watching their families go to captivity, seeing their city totally destroyed, laid waste. And now they're back in Jerusalem with another shot. And what they do is they totally tighten down on the law. Because they perceive that their judgment, the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of Jerusalem, the glory of Israel, was all because they did not obey the law. So what they're going to do now is they're going to get meticulous with the law. They are going to, um, this is where the synagogues come from, right? The emphasis of, of Judaism up until this point has been on blood sacrifice, um, has been on worship, uh, ceremonial worship. But now the emphasis will be on teaching. Why did the emphasis switch from blood sacrifice and worship to synagogues and men sitting on Moses' seat and teaching? Because they are, they are operating out of this place of we are never going to let that happen again. What happened when Babylon destroyed us and stole us, the judgment of God, we will never go back to that. And so they get meticulously zealous about dicing up the law. And the law, in the commandments in the Old Testament, there's roughly 600 commandments, and they turn it into thousands of commandments because the scriptures will say things like, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. So then imagine them sitting around and going, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? How do we make sure that we don't dishonor the Sabbath and then we don't end up in Babylon again? Well, and then they begin to build laws around the laws. And so honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't work on the Sabbath, turns into you better not light your lamp. And sure don't put the thing out. And you see how it turns into this meticulous, legalistic, religious thing because they're doing everything they can not to let that happen again. Now, as generations go, it turns into this very legalistic, meticulous, we're going we to live out this externally righteous lifestyle and people become proud in their hearts of it. Um, but what they miss is that Yahweh was not after meticulous. The heart of God wasn't, I'm going to give you a list of rules and you follow these rules and I'll never judge you. But if you break the rules, I'm going to destroy you. The heart of God was, I call you my bride. And I'm after covenant, intimate relationship with you. 
And so when they shifted to the place to view God as a divine police officer, and as long as they didn't speed, they'd never be pulled over, they, they shifted into a realm of legalism and hypocrisy and, and cross your T's and dot your I's, and they missed intimacy with the creator of the universe who wasn't after this type of legalistic system. He was after people who loved him. And when they, they went after other gods, Yahweh said, you committed adultery against me. I loved you as my own bride. And so God was always after this kind of intimate fellowship. And what Jesus is saying now to the Pharisees is, you follow your little rules, you cross your T's and you dot your I's, but you do not know me. And, and Jesus will heal the sick on the Sabbath day. And they'll say, they'll, they'll, they'll say we're essentially trying to bring um, persecute him because he heals the sick. And Jesus will say things like, if your donkey fell in a hole on the Sabbath, when you get it out, like, why, why, are, why are you acting as if the Sabbath is about following these little tight, meticulous rules? That was never the heart of God. And Jesus' expression throughout his entire ministry is, I'm going to show you what it means to fulfill law and to fulfill Sabbath. And so that's what we find is this type of very tight, meticulous, teeth-gritted holiness that's really birthed out of a place of saying, we're never going to be judged again, rather than saying, we dishonored the, the God who calls himself our bridegroom. Let's go back to really loving and serving him. When you remove love from the pursuit of holiness, it's no longer holy. It's legalism and hypocritical. And so we want to be a people who really, really walk in holiness, but we need to remember that holiness has to be birthed from worship and a love of God and a love of Yahweh. I was, um, again, not, please don't hear me whitewashing Pentecostal history because there's, again, quite a bit of mess in it. Um, but I was ordained in a, um, in a traditional ordained license, they call it different things, in a traditional Pentecostal denomination. Um, and under that leadership, I wasn't um, allowed to partake of alcohol at all. It was total abstinence, which was fine. I was fine. And so I, I still abstain from alcohol um, because I had to for so long and I do have some alcoholism in my family. Um, and so it's just, I, I never went down the road. I just rather not mess with it. But, but what you can get to the place where we're saying, where, where scripture says, um, don't be drunk, but scripturally speaking, um, the church, uh, the Lord's supper was always wine, right? The church drank wine. Um, but we can get to this, this kind of tight-knit legalism that just wants to follow the rules, and you have to follow the rules. And so, um, but there's a place, anyway, I'm going to get too far down that rabbit hole. Y'all trying to take me somewhere we shouldn't go, and y'all trying to make me go too long. And so Jesus says, um, they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus says, at this point, it's totally about just being seen. And he says to the Pharisees at one point, you can't believe and seek the glory that comes from God because all you do is seek glory that comes from one another. He says, you, you stand on the street corners and pray so that everyone can hear and you have your reward, the attention of people. You're not after the attention of God. So Jesus says, everything they do is for people's sake. Then he says this, they love to be called rabbis and they love to be called teacher. And they loved to be called father. And then he says, you don't call anyone father. 
Now, he's not talking about biological fathers, obviously. Um, but this is quite an interesting passage of Scripture that we should meditate upon and not rush over so quickly. Um, so he says, don't call anyone father, for you have one father. Don't call anyone teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. Um, and he says, the greatest in the church, the greatest in the kingdom, they'll be the servant, the humblest of all. Um, there's a movement today, and maybe this movement's had its play, to be honest, um, but there was quite a movement to reinstate this idea of spiritual fathers and mothers. And when Paul says to the Corinthians, you have many tutors, he says, you have many teachers, but you do not have many fathers. And we've quoted that scripture and taught from that scripture. And what we teach is the problem in the church is we don't have more spiritual fathers and mothers. But if you'll take 10 minutes to try to actually exegete or understand what Paul's saying to the Corinthian churches, he's saying this, you have many tutors, many teachers, but you have one father. That's me. He's saying the I planted this church. I am the apostle that bled and sweat and prayed so that this church would be built. You're going to listen to me. He is not saying everybody wants to be a teacher, but nobody wants to be a father. What he's saying is you about to listen to what I have to say. You know, when your mom gets in your face that way, that's essentially what he's saying. I preached the gospel to you. I, I bled and sweat over this congregation. You have a lot of teachers. A lot of people have input, but you, you're going to hear what I have to say right now. So he's not saying what we need is more spiritual fathers and mothers. He's saying, you're going to listen up. Um, but what happened was there was this great emphasis on spiritual fathers and mothers. And so imagine I'm 20, roughly 20 years old and um, in ministry school. And, and I think that it became somewhat apparent to some of the people around me that there, there was a little bit of gifting on my life or calling for ministry, not a lot, whatever. Um, and what would happen was I would get these pastors who I didn't know at all, but who would kind of try to get me close to them. And then they would kind of um, show me off as their, they would call me their spiritual son and show me off. And then they would ask me to like preach or share at a, at a meeting. And if I did well, they were, they were kind of really proud of it. And what I realized after a couple years of this is that these guys didn't really care about me at all or have any interest in me. And they, they always referred to me as spiritual son, but it was about their ego and not about actually discipling people. On the other hand, the men who paid the greatest prices for me, the men who sat with me in their living room, who I cried in their trucks, who they prayed with me, they have never once referred to me as their spiritual son. They always refer to me as brother, sometimes little brother, um, but it's always brother. And so one of these men um, hired me at one point to come and work for him, and it was his birthday, maybe Christmas, I don't know. I wrote him a card, and I wrote like, I love you, I am so honored to serve you and serve your ministry, something like that. Have a great birthday. Um, and he pulled me in his office maybe like a week later, and he was like, Caleb, this is not a big deal at all. Don't, don't take this too hard. But he said, I just want to say this to you. He said, you don't serve me, you serve with me. And he said, you don't serve my ministry. This is the Lord's ministry that we serve together. And he said, I, he said, I don't want you to, to talk about me as if you serve your master. He said, you are my brother and we serve together. Now, they're obviously like he's my boss, right? <laughs> what he says goes. So they're obviously, and in the church, it's the same way. Like they're, they're, the church, the scriptures do teach that churches have government structures. But I want to say to you this morning, um, I... I don't need you to speak of me or any of the leadership in this church as if we are somehow elevated or um, I call the man who I would call my pastor who pastored during the season of uh, when I really got saved. He's a brilliant, 
He's seriously the most humble man I've ever met in my life. I call him pastor out of great love and respect. I, I, I just simply call him pastor. If you call me pastor out of love or respect for the role that I carry, I'm totally okay with that. I'm also totally okay with Caleb. Um, because all men struggle with ego, and I don't need my ego stroked, and I don't need us as a family to ever prop me or an elder or any minister up as higher or above or better than anyone else. If I am to truly be the pastor of this church, scripturally speaking, I have to be more servant-hearted than anybody. And I don't know if you know Jimmy, but I am not keeping up, okay? Um, And so it's a problem. And so thank God he's got a broke shoulder or something. So sit down for a while. Um, but do you guys hear what I'm saying? Like the culture of the church is I'm supposed to be servant hearted and I need y'all to hold me accountable to that, right? Like let's create an environment. You don't serve me. You don't serve my ministry. This is our ministry and our family and our church. And you're welcome to call me pastor out of love, but please don't feel obligated. You you guys. And and that's really what Jesus is saying here that, that don't allow people to lead you who are about their ego. Um, all right, let me wrap up because I don't know if you noticed, but Mr. Micah put a little timer on the back wall that's counting down at me, and it's like he's screaming at me every time it ticks. I rebuke you, Satan. <laughs> the clock, not Micah, <laughs> the clock. <laughs> we don't want to crave titles. We don't want to bolster up one another's ego. I pray all the time that... Our worship team would serve us and, and serve to the best of their ability out of a sincere heart to glorify God and to lead us in worship. But I pray all the time, Lord, please don't let a man or woman get on this stage with pride in their heart and want to use this as an opportunity for praise. I, I need you to pray that over me. I need you to pray. I'm, I'm asking you to pray for me as, as pastor that, that I would be a man of humility that I would not be a man of ego. And if there is ego that begins to rise up, you better sit me down. Please sit me down before the Lord sits me down. Um, and so the way I want to I close today, because I'm, I'm saying so much, the way I want to close today is I want to close praying that we as a family would have a sincere and genuine pursuit of holiness while we continue to pursue the power of the Spirit because we want all of him. We don't want to chop him up in little pieces. The altar team was telling me that we had two healings last week, right? Like, beautiful. We love it. Um, we, but we also um, want to love when the Spirit convicts us of sin. We also want to love when there's someone struggling with alcoholism in our church and gets set free from it. We also want to love when God restores a marriage. We also want to love when men and women in our church get rid of their pornography addictions. We also want to love and celebrate one another as we learn to speak to each other with honor and kindness and humility. And so we want all of the whole, we want to keep in step with the spirit, Paul says. So if you would stand to your feet, I'm going to, we're just going to spend this last little bit we have close, a closing praying that God would make us a people of sincere and genuine holiness and that the fire of the spirit would purge us of, of the flesh. I told the worship team, you better come out fast. I need y'all fast. <laughs> I know this seems a little bit selfish, but I, w- I want to ask you to pray for me this morning. I want to pray for the leadership of this church, to pray for the worship team. Uh, and then we're going to pray for um, every father and mother, boss in this room, that we would learn to lead out of humility, learn to lead out of selflessness, that we would speak very aware that the presence of the Holy Spirit is with us every step of our life. I was 
doing marriage. I'm always doing marriage counseling. We're doing marriage counseling right now. And I was telling a couple that, um, telling the husband, every time you speak to your wife, the Holy Spirit is in the room. And it's either worship or it's sin, right? And we want to be very aware of his presence. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, as a house, as a family, we just come to you and we ask right now that you would send the fire of your spirit to purge us of any selfishness, any ego. Lord, we want to continue to see you heal the sick, deliver the oppressed. Lord, we are so excited about people giving their life to Jesus. But we just open our arms this morning and we say, Holy Spirit, we want all of your ministry. We want all of your character. We want you to form us in the image of Christ. So Lord, we pray for the leadership of this church this morning. We pray that you would protect us from ever having um, deception in our leadership, that you would convict me, convict our elders, convict every person who leads a ministry team if we ever begin to lead out of pride, that you would keep us people of great humility. Lord, we pray for this worship team and every person who serves on our worship team this morning. We pray that you would drive them to their knees in sincere worship, that this would never be a platform about performance, but would be always be about exalting the beauty and the majesty of who Jesus is. Jesus, you alone are worthy of glory. You alone. So Lord, as we lead our businesses, as we speak with our coworkers, as we speak to our spouses, Lord, we ask that you would make us very aware of the omniscient presence of the Spirit, that you are with us and you are listening. I don't know why I've been so reminded of A.W. Tozer's words um, where he said uh, once that the scriptures say two cannot walk together unless they walk in court. And if you want to walk with the Holy Spirit, you better learn something about holiness. And so, Lord, we just say we want to walk with you, Holy Spirit. So teach us your ways. Teach us your ways. Destiny, will you sing that chorus for us as we close? Come on, let's sing We Love You just for a moment. It's all about you, Jesus. salvation. The blood of Jesus is perfectly able to wash you of all of your sins. You can be sure today that you belong to the kingdom of heaven, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did on the cross of Calvary. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says. 
And so the altar is open. We would love, love to pray with you before you leave. A couple more things. As we prayed this morning, there was a word that someone might be struggling with inner ear issues. We'd love to pray with you with that. And also that there might be someone struggling with throat issues, that you maybe had a call for way too long. We'd love to pray that God would heal you of that. And as always, if you're ever struggling, if you're struggling with any depression or anxiety or any any of those things, we'd love to pray with you for, before you go. We believe God's power is here to heal and to restore So the altars are going to stay open. The worship team is going to stay in place. But you are officially dismissed. And we just want you to know that we love you so deeply. Please don't leave here without receiving prayer if you need it this morning. Amen. Amen. We love you. Feel free to hang out and worship.